This is Chthonia, the world of the dark feminine. Hello and welcome to Chthonia, the podcast dealing with the dark feminine. I'm your host, Breach Burke. This week, our topic is going to be the Norse goddess Hel. Uh, yeah, that is actually her name, but it's not spelled like the, the place um, that we think of of punishment in Christian, um, well, in Christian thinking, certainly, the idea of heaven, you know, heaven, hell, and perhaps purgatory if you're, if you're Catholic. Um, hell, in this case, is spelled with uh, just one L, so it's H-E-L. And hell is, as you might expect, she is a goddess or queen of the underworld. Now, in Norse uh, thinking, what I want to do is I want to read a little description of her here from the, I have a book that I have on uh, Norse mythology entitled uh, Norse Mythology, Legends of Gods and Heroes by Peter Andreas Munch uh, that was published in uh, 1954. Uh, And this is what he has to say about hell. Just open to my page. Okay. Uh, he says, far down beneath the root of um, um, Yggdrasil, which is the world tree. Okay, there's a, um, in, in Norse mythology, there's this great, great tree that sort of grows at the, um, the end of the world. In the darkest and coldest Niflheim, which is, um, is something kind of like Tartarus in Greek mythology. It's a very, very dark depth under the earth. Lies the fearful domain of hell daughter of Loki and Angerboda. Now, who is Angerboda? Angerboda is a, a giantess. We talked about, when we talked about Skadi, we talked about the Jotun, okay, who are giants, or they use the feminine term giantess. Uh, I think, I don't know, I think, I suppose now we, we try to stay away from, just like we say, actor and actress. I guess we still do that, but there's tending to be a way of trying to get away from um, overly, overly masculinizing or feminizing those words. And interestingly, that's not merely a digression. That um, that idea of um, uh, feminization or grammatical feminization of something uh, is is actually an issue here that I'm going to talk about near the end of the podcast. Um, the thing that we want to okay, so just going on here, Angerboda. So she's a she's a giantess who is associated with grief, uh, the bringer of grief, and Loki is her partner. Okay, so Loki is the trickster god. So even though he is part of the Aesir, which is the, you know, the, the sort of pantheon of gods in, in, well, they're not sort of, they're the pantheon of gods in Norse mythology, uh, the uh, Jotun are considered to be their enemies. So this is Loki um, mating with uh, the, with this, with this, um, with one of the enemies of, of the um, tribe of gods that he belongs to. And immediately you see an interesting symbolism because you have Loki who in some ways you could line up with a god like Hermaeus, for example, or Mercury, who is a, uh, a psychopomp, a mover between boundaries. Um, Hermaeus, though, was considered to be, even though he was a trickster, uh, tended to have a, a more uh, favorable reputation, shall we say, than Loki. Loki was always considered to be a troublemaker, and he was always a secret friend of the Jotun. Um, of course, you also see here a uh, a real split here, like you know that the the uh, gods um, in Valhalla, you know Odin and, and the Aesir, that they are you know there's an implication there that they are good and that the Jotun are not. Um, but the Jotun, kind of like the Titans, they represent uh, these these natural forces. 
and so what um so Angerboda is basic is she is considered to be the mother of all monsters and if you again just to sort of cross compare here if you look at the greek where um Uranus and Gaia okay Gaia being the earth mother Gaia is the one who gives birth to monsters um by you know made by um her union with the sky god uh now Uranus we couldn't compare to Loki uh, they're 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 different in in disposition and and in everything, but you know, but the idea that the this trickster god of heaven, this this um, this one who kind of slides between both sides, and this um, giantess who brings grief, you know, mate and they produce three children. Okay, and I'm going to talk about their children in a moment, but hell is one of their children. Uh, it says one half of her body has a livid tinge, the other half the hue of human flesh. She is harsh and cruel, greedy for prey, and tenacious of those who have once fallen under once they've fallen under her rule. The dark, deep veils surrounding her kingdom are called hellways. To go thither, men must cross the river Joel, roaring or resounding, spanned by the bridge of Joel, which is paved with gold. Lofty walls enclose her dwelling place, and the gate that opens upon it is called Hellgate. That's with two L's. Her hall is known as Eldudnir. Her dish or porringer as hunger, her knife as famine, her bondman and bondmaid as ganglati and ganglot, both words meaning tardy or late. Her threshold as sinking to destruction, her couch as sickbed, the curtains of her bed as glimmering mischance. So you see her here, this personification of all things that are um, unhappy, shall we say. Her huge uh, bandog garm is, a bloody, uh, is bloody of chest and muzzle. Her sooty red cock crows to herald the fall of the universe. Uh, in the midst of Niflheim stands the well uh, Virgilmir, beside which lies the serpent Nidog. The brinks of Virgilmir are called Nastran, the strand of corpses. And here, the most forbidding spot in Niflheim. All who did not fall in battle were said to go to hell, but the general belief seems nevertheless to have been that only the wicked found their way thither. Okay. Now, that's really interesting. Think about the value system there. In other words, in, in the Nordic way of thinking, at least at this time, the only people who were eligible to be with the gods were people who went to war. Um... And, and again, not, not to overly compare with the Greek, because I'm not necessarily suggesting that that's the origin of it, but if you think about uh, the great epics like the Iliad and the Odyssey, um, you know, I mean, the Iliad is, this, is the account of the Trojan War, and the heroes who end up in the Elysian fields, these, these great, you know, places are either kings who ruled very well, who were, who were demigods, but also um, the warriors who were... Um, you know, who were demigods. They were usually the child of Zeus and, you know, you know, in some cases, um, you know, there were other gods like, Anchi um, not Anchises, Anchises and Aphrodite produced uh, Aeneas, for example. Um, but yeah, but, but this, this value was signed to war. And part of the reason for that might be that uh, they're, they're really, you're talking about cultures that really did not originally have a belief in the survival of the soul after death. I mean, they felt something survived or some kind of ghost survives, but it's not the same as the person who passed away. And that eventually what happens is that, you know, if, if um, it's the same reason we have headstones and things, you mark it because you want the person to be remembered. And the idea is that if you do great deeds in battle and then you um, fall fighting for your tribe or for your country or, or, or whatever, um, that this... Um, 
this ends up, uh, you know, that this, you know, this is what gives you that immortality. And in this case, it, it's, it's, it's taking it in kind of that heaven and hell model, like those worthy of heaven and worthy of being with the gods and being immortal are those who are brave warriors um, because their deeds, you know, if you follow the personification model, it's like their deeds are what, you know, qualify them to be immortal um, and to be remembered in the same way that gods are. Okay. So, but as, as they mentioned, eventually what happens uh, over time is it becomes a place of the wicked. And of course, as we know, hell with a double L is most definitely associated as a place with the wicked. Now we're going to, I'm going to talk about that because that is one of the things I want to cover as well as the stories of the goddess hell. Um, I want to talk about the etymology of the place itself. Um, okay. So to finish my discussion of her here, um, Okay, in the terminology of the Skalds, Hel is not infrequently designated as the daughter of Loki, the wolf, the Fenris wolf's sister, and the like. The name Hel and Nifel are often used uh, of the realm of the dead. Okay, and of course, when ghosts appear, it's to say the Hell's Gate is open, and it was possible for spirits to slip out. Now, I also want to quote from this book. Um, uh, they have a section on Loki and his children, and they only have three children. Or he has three children with... Um, uh, you know, we, um, gosh, what's her name again? I need to bring that up. Uh, Angerboda. Okay. I don't, I wanted to say her name differently for some reason. So, okay. So Loki, um, he is, uh, let me just see what it says. Okay. Okay, so it says, Loki was well-favored but crafty and malicious. To be sure, he was sometimes compelled to make good the evil he had done, and occasionally he even placed his cunning at the service of the Aesir in seasons of great need. Yet, in all that really mattered, he remained their enemy and secret friend of the giants. Loki was the actual instigator of the death of Baldur. At the last day, he will reappear as one of the captains of the giants, and his terrible progeny will cause much more harm than even he himself. With the giantess Angerboda and Jotunheim, he has three, had three children, Fenrir, uh, Jormungand, and Hel. Uh, Fenrir was a ravening wolf, also known as the Fenris wolf, uh, and apparently a wolf who was so fierce that only um, one god could, would volunteer to actually feed him. Um, Jormungand was a hideous venom-spewing serpent, and Hel was a horrible hag. These three were fostered as children in Jotunheim, and the gods foreknew, very weird choice of word there, weird for, for, uh, choice of translation, that Loki's offspring would work them great evil. Therefore, the Allfather, Odin, commanded them to be brought before him. The gods forbore to put them to death, meaning they decided not to put them to death, for the course of fate was not to be broken, neither was the sacred refuge of Valhalla to be contaminated. Okay. So recognizing, okay, so the fact that the gods are saying, no, these, these, um, these beings are not to die indicates that they, um, if, what these beings represent, the kind of destruction and death that they represent, that's a recognition there of the necessity of death, okay? You know, you cannot, you really truly cannot be immortal. We spend a lot of time trying to prolong our lives and make things go on and on, but the reason we have disease and, and destruction and things is that, you know, I mean, you know, in, in spite of any psychological motivation for that, biologically speaking, you know, we just, the earth couldn't sustain it if everybody lived forever. I mean, it's just not, not a possible thing. There's a recognition of the necessity of death. Okay. Um, okay. 
so that they didn't want them in Valhalla, so the gods sought other means of being rid of the three. Hell they thrust into the depths of Niflheim to hold sway there and receive in her abode all who should die of illness or old age, whether men or other beings of earth. Um, Jormungand, the way that G is is killing me, um, they hurled into the deep sea of the universe, where he grew and waxed so great as to be able to encompass the earth and bite his own tail. Okay. Therefore, he is commonly called the Midgard Serpent, since he holds all Midgard in circles. And then they go on to tell the story of the wolf and how, you know, it's, you know, how they managed to finally fetter and chain the wolf with a... This, I'm just going to read this little piece because it's interesting. Um, the wolf breaks the first two chains that they put on him because he knows he can't really be held. So they appeal to the dwarves, and they make a chain. Are you going to like this? From the sound of a cat's footfall, the beard of a woman, the roots of a mountain, the sinews of a bear, the breath of fishes, and the spittle of birds. This is the reason why the footfall of the cat no longer has any sound, why women have no beards, why mountains have no roots, and so on. Um, and the chain was actually fine and soft as silk. Okay, so it's really... Um, I thought that was a little interesting um, tidbit there. But think about the serpent. Um, okay, so the serpent here, okay, it, it grows big enough to swallow its own tail. Now, what's that? That's the Ouroboros. The Ouroboros is the serpent, literally the serpent that swallows its own tail. You'll see images of this. Um, you know, you can look up, even if you look up snake swallowing tail, you'll see images of the Ouroboros. It's a very common image. And it's not only an image in, you know, ancient mythologies, but... You know, you see it on Christian churches and things as well. I remember a student showing me one from uh, an Orthodox church, Greek Orthodox church, uh, at one time. And, yeah, the, so this, 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 this encircling serpent under the ground that swallows its tail, that tail that's an extremely chthonic uh, symbol right there. And there's definitely a symbolism there of sort of death, really of death and resurrection, but it's the way, it's the cycle of life, the way that things are born, they live, and then they die, okay? And then things cycle around again. Now, that doesn't necessarily imply metempsychosis or, or reincarnation or, or one of those, you know, things, but nonetheless, certainly it represents the cycle of what we see in nature, um, now, whether or not they believed in reincarnation, it, it doesn't, it certainly doesn't sound that way, um, at least not at this point. Now, whether they did, again, whether they did earlier, um, it's hard to say. I'm going to talk a little bit about um, hell and her appearance, because the word itself seems to come from the 10th century, or actually, no, I'm sorry, 725 uh, CE is the first time there's a, re there's a reference to hell as the world of the dead. And I'm going to talk about the etymology in a second, but the first time we see hell mentioned as a goddess it's probably, at first at the Gospel of Nicodemus, um, and really not as a goddess there, probably more as a demonic figure in the 11th century, and then uh, you see her in the uh, Prosetta mentioned in the 13th century. Okay. So I'm going to read this etymology, um, and yes, I did take this from Wikipedia, but it's, it's a fairly complete etymology. It says, the modern English word hell is derived from Old English, hell or hell, H-E-L-L-E, -L -L -E, first attested around 725 to refer to another world of the dead, reaching into the Anglo-Saxon pagan period. The word has cognates in all branches of the Germanic languages, including the Old Norse Hel, which refers to both the location and the goddess being, Old Frisian Hella, Old Saxon Helia, Old High German Hella, and Gothic Halja. 
All forms ultimately derive from reconstructed proto-Germanic feminine noun um, haljol, concealed place or the underworld. In turn, the proto-Germanic uh, derives from the O-grade form of the proto-Indopean root kel or kol to cover, conceal, or save. Indo-European cognates include Latin um, kelare, to hide, related to the English word cellar, because th- you have to remember the C, um, in, in classical Latin, the C is, is hard like a K. Um, in church Latin, they would have said it cellare, okay? And church Latin, of course, is what later proliferated uh, around the continent. And the early, early Irish um, kilid or silid uh, hides. Upon the Christianization of the Germanic peoples, extensions of Proto-Germanic um, haljo were reinterpreted to denote the underworld in Christian mythology, okay? Which actually, prior to that, um, it, there, there's an interesting... Um, it would be interesting sometime to do a, a podcast on the um, the development of the idea of hell because it's well actually I, I talk about it a lot in my book Death and the Maiden but I only go up to the early Christian period you know there there's there's a lot more that goes on in the medieval period let me see for example Dante's Inferno he has these, the um, the the Divine Comedy and and you know what do you have you have um, uh, Inferno Purgatorio and Paradiso you know so hell purgatory and heaven and Dante and of course there was a lot of um political commentary written into those works as well um I remember doing a study of Inferno in in graduate school um, with with a monk of all people but I I you know reading the uh, Inferno and we had to read it in the he wanted us to read it in the old Italian um which of course most people balked at, but I, and I told him I said, well, I have taken Latin. He's like, then then you're fine. They're basically they're 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 so similar, you'll be fine. But um, and yeah, you were able to follow along. I mean, um, in the in the old uh, old Italian, but the idea is that the Inferno, um, and, and you know, and these these kind of conceptions that we see of hell that Dante creates, which have stayed with us as the this conception of what you know what punishments would await the wicked in the afterlife. And of course, the the threat that we always have, you know, if you grew up Catholic, I know, growing up with the idea that there's an angel on your shoulder, you know, and they're writing your bad, one's writing your bad deeds in one book, and one's writing your good deeds in another, almost reminds me of the Egyptian, you know, we're going to weigh your heart against a feather. Um, And you have to say all the right formulae to say, you know, that you're going to pass into into the other world, or be devoured. Um, And by the way, in ancient Egypt, um, the punishment, if you were punished, in other words, if you, if you were judged to be wicked, and too wicked to go through the gates of the underworld. It's not that you went to hell or any hell-like place. You were just devoured by, by demonic forces, basically. It was like, again, the annihilation of the person. The annihilation, um, the idea is that, that that was the worst thing that could happen to you, was that you would be, you know, whatever was left of you would be annihilated, and you wouldn't be remembered. Okay, that's, that's the worst. That's also the importance of funerary rites. You know, there's the idea that the dead has to be taken care of, otherwise... If they're lost or forgotten, they could end up as kind of a restless soul that, that, that wanders around. Um, and that's another podcast I want to do uh, down the road. I have it on my um, list for later this year. But talking about the restless dead and how the restless dead behave, um, you know, this is more, this, this becomes something. This becomes, the, the goddess becomes a personification of a place. But the question becomes, is she merely, merely, quote-unquote, a personification of this um, very unpleasant afterlife, or is she uh, 
or is she something else? I mean, is she, you know, um, is she actually a, a goddess? And as we'll see towards the end of this, there is some disagreement um, among scholars about, you know, wh which it is. But, uh, but, but the idea of hell as, as a place of punishment, um, as I've said, as I mentioned in Death and the Maiden, it starts with the philosophers, and it starts with the idea that, first of all, it's judging the gods, judging the ethical behavior of gods. Um, and then it, then it changes into dealing with the ethical behavior of, um, you, know, the, you know, Socrates' idea that if you have judgment in life, you must have judgment in death. Because, um, again, this was not original concept to the ancients. I mean, death was considered to be unpleasant. The underworld was like, you know, like a spooky old house in a way. You know, it was just, you know, dr dusty and dry. And, you know, there might be some places that are a little nicer. But, you know, you're not alive. Okay. And you're not substantial. And uh, you're just kind of, you know, the shadow of your former self. You're the Adelon, you know, the, the shadow of your former self just kind of floating around. And as we noted in the Dionysus podcast, you know, eventually um, there become this idea of overcoming fear of death and being able to actually um, have control over what happens to you after death. And then, of course, this leads um, into these notions of judgment after death because, you know, people who live, you know, first it's people in the mystery cults, but it's people who live a certain kind of life are the ones who end up in, you know, who, en who end up in the better parts of the underworld. Or, you know, and, and then later on, of course, when you have this idea of um, Dionysus as a, as a god, um, or the idea of ingesting the god to be able to um, have, have, have the essence of the divine in yourself. Um, <clears throat> this is something that is, you know, this, 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 this is where we start to have the idea of, you know, what people are worthy of after death. And so places like Tartarus, these deep, dark abysses, and here Niflheim, as, we, as they call it, these are places of deep darkness. And it's assumed that, that you know, instead of it just being <clears throat> a place where people go when they die, because, you know, just like you're buried under the earth, you're in a dark place under the earth, right? Um, now it becomes a whole thing of, uh, you know, that, that that's, it's not, you know, that you are... You know, it, it's not it's not just that the very wicked go there. You're you're actually you know that that actually becomes a place of punishment for everybody, whereas previously it was only you had you had to be exceptionally bad, like you had to make the gods like really angry, to be confined to Tartarus, or you had to be something like a great monster, like this serpent we were just talking about. Um, so okay, um, yeah. So we have this idea of of hell and. And and yes, the, the the modern word hell does come from this this Nordic and, and also Saxon kind of uh, Proto-Germanic root, like a lot of English. A lot of English comes from Saxon and German. Um, there's there's some what we call um, Romance or Roman roots. There are there are Latin cognates and French and you know well that that's Romance too because languages like French and Spanish and and um, you know Romanian and a lot of those they all come from uh, they all come from Latin. So um, Latin actually makes up a, a surprising minority of, of English cognates. So this, this so it, it's, yeah, so it's absolutely, that's where this, this term has um, uh, come from. So, okay, so where do we get this relationship of this goddess? Is, is it just, is it simply a grammatical thing that, you know, that was the Nordic word that translated into the Saxon word, so that's the word that came over into English for the Christian underworld? Well, not entirely. 
let's talk about where hell appears now in stories. So if we start with, okay, there's an old English Gospel of Nicodemus. Um, now let me just talk a minute about what that document is. It's also known as the Acts of Pilate, and it's an, what they call an apocryphal gospel. So in other words, it's, some, it's one of those works that it didn't make it into the main Bible, let's put it that way. And it claims to have been derived from an original Hebrew work written by Nicodemus, okay, who appears in the Gospel of John as an associate of Jesus. The title Gospel of Nicodemus is medieval in origin. The date of its accreted sections are uncertain, but according to the 1907 edition of the Catholic Encyclopedia, scholars agree in assigning resulting work to the middle of the 4th century CE. Okay, so the middle of the 4th century, again, this is around the time Christianity becomes the official religion, around the 300s. And... um, so, so that's, so it, what's mentioned here, okay, there's, so that what this is, is it's supposed to be a gospel about Pilate. Um, there's another text called the Acts of Peter and Paul, and this is supposed to be an official docu- document from Pontius Pilate, um, a reporting events in Judea to the Emperor Tiberius, referring to the crucifixion of Jesus and his miracles. Um, and, you know, again, there's, there's, I, I, I'm sure I've said this before, but in case this is something you're not aware of, you know, you, you look in the Bible, there are four Gospels, plus they have the Acts of the Apostles, and then you have other books like, um, you know, the Letters of Paul, Letters of Paul, because most of Christianity is just Paul talking, and then the Book of Revelation, which again was the one um, written by John of Potmos. So that's really what makes up the New Testament, um, and those Gospels are referred to as the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, however, there were hundred, there were over a hundred other works um, written about Jesus or the life of Jesus. We often refer to these as the Gnostic Gospels. Um, that's sometimes true, whether or not it was all really "quote unquote" Gnostic in its um, uh, philosophy or inflection. It's hard to say. But when they made Christianity an official religion, they basically made a decision about what for you know what what books were going to be the official teaching and what what were we officially going to follow because there was a lot of different things as we mentioned again in the Dionysus episode all the syncretism between all these different religions it was like the emperor saying okay this is going to be the state religion we have to say what it is and you know and and resolve these contradictions which I never fully did resolve by the way but you know that, that a lot of that goes on so okay but gospel of Nicodemus is in two parts um with an appendix um and um the uh, with an appendix, um, which is called the Harrowing of Hell. Harrowing of Hell is a um, is an interesting concept about that when Jesus is crucified and he dies, that his soul actually descends to hell first to open the gates and let um, you know some of the and to actually rescue people from hell. So, for example, people who who would not have been there at the time of Christ. So, people like you know Abraham or Moses who would have been assumed to be in a part of hell. Um, because they were unable to be redeemed at that time. So supposedly Jesus goes and, and rescues those people. So first parts re- contain the trial of Jesus on Luke 20, based on Luke 23. Um, and, um, you know, uh, and the second part concerns the resurrection. Um, so let's see, do they have, okay, so that's really what that is. Now, where, where, so what does this have to do with hell? Where does, where does she come in? So, 
Now, the, the manuscripts that we have preserved of this Gospel of Nicodemus are probably from the 11th century, even if it, though it was written earlier. It says, um, it contains a female figure referred to as CO Hell, S-E, literally SEO, like if you think of search engine optimization, I mean, it's not, that's not what it stands for, but that SEO, uh, CO Hell, who engages in flighting with Satan and tells him to leave her dwelling. Um, regarding C.O. Hell in the Old English Gospel of Nicodemus, um, this was, the, this was the, obviously it was written in original language, and this was an Old English um, rewriting or translation. Um, Michael Bell states that her vivid personification in a dramatically excellent scene suggests that her gender is more than grammatical and invites comparison with the Old Norse underworld goddess Hell and Frau Halle of German folklore, to say nothing of underworld goddesses in other cultures. Yet he adds the possibility that these genders are merely grammatical, strengthened by the fact that there's an Old Norse version of this gospel translated in English under an English influence that personifies hell in the neutral. Okay, the Old Norse um, um, Helviti. Okay, there's I think there's a predecessor to that, but I'm I don't know how to say it. So, um, but yeah, but the idea of it being a neutral. Now the gender of things again. I I want to don't want to digress into that right now, but. Gender, I, I would suggest that um, grammatical gender is more than just, you know, a, a literary construct. There is more to it than that, and I'll explain why. Now, the other writing that talks about hell uh, as referring to making this old Norse hell refer to the Christian hell, uh, there is a what's something called the Bartholomew Saga. And this was an old Norse uh, document from about the 13th century which mentions a queen hell, and it's a life of St. Bartholomew. In a story, a devil is hiding within a pagan idol and bound by Bartholomew's spiritual powers to acknowledge himself and confess. The devil refers to Jesus as the one who made war on hell our queen. Okay, so that's a reference back to the harrowing of hell. Queen hell is not mentioned elsewhere in the saga. So yeah, there's definitely, they're, they're connecting there the goddess hell with, um, uh, or the giantess hell with the, um, you know, w with the uh, with the Christian hell in this case. So, so where does she appear in the Norse sagas? Let's let's go back to her original. Um, I wanted to talk about that because that that is kind of the most obvious thing that people are going to pick up on is the connection to hell, the place. Okay, and and yes, certainly there there is a connection there, although um, it, it could be argued that the goddess hell uh, in her original form was probably not what she later came to represent. Okay, so let's see what, um, where, where else she's referred to. Okay, hell, this is again taking from, um, some of these are notes from Wikipedia. I pulled them from a bunch of places, but um, mainly, I, I think mainly from there, and there might have been another site that I pulled this from as well, but they're just short clips. Um, Hell's referred to in the Prose Edda, written in the 13th century by Snorri Sturluson. In chapter 34 of the book, um, Hell is listed by, um, by High as one of three children of Loki and Angerboda, um, which we just talked about. Okay, so that's mentioned there. Um, so that, 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 that appears in the Prose Edda. In chapter 49, the de they describe the events surrounding the death of the god Baldur. The goddess Frigga asks who among the Aesir will earn all her love and favor by riding to Hell, the location, to try to find Baldur and offer Hell herself as a ransom. Um, uh, the god Hermodura volunteers and sets off on the eight-legged horse uh, Sleipnir to hell. Um, Hermodura arrives in Hell's Hall, finds his brother Baldur, and stays the night. 
The next morning, uh, Hermidor begs Hel to allow Baldur to ride home with him and tells her about the great weeping the Aesir have done upon Baldur's death. Hel says the love of the people have says the love the people have for Baldur um, that Hermdor has claimed must be tested, stating, if all things in the world, alive or dead, weep for him, then he will be allowed to return to the Aesir. If anyone speaks against him or refuses to cry, then he will remain with Hel. Okay. And then, of course, there is a female Jotun who refuses to um, weep for him, saying, let Hel hold what she has. Okay, so um, that, uh, and that reminds me, too, of the Persephone and Hades episode. Um, and sometimes, by the way, um, Hell is referred to as Persephone, probably you know, drawing a comparison between the Greek and, uh, or Proserpina, which is the Roman, and, um, and this particular goddess. Uh, it reminds me of when Orpheus goes to the underworld to get his bride Eurydice back. And the way he gets Eurydice back is he, he plays his, his lyre. He plays his uh, stringed you know, instrument, and, he's, and he, his playing is so beautiful that he manages to get all the dead actually stop in their activity, and they're just entranced. And he moves the hearts of both Hades and Persephone, who tell him, well, yes, you can. they also propose a test. You can take her back up to the up, but you can't look at her. So, and he actually is okay through most of it, but then at the very end, while she's still in the mouth of the cave, he turns around, and then, of course, because she's still in the mouth of the underworld, he, she disappears forever. So, so he is unsuccessful um, in that uh, venture. So, you know, you see this kind of similar idea of the queen of the underworld putting a test. We also see this in the um, Descent of Inanna, too, of course, in a much more significant way, because that, that one is more about you know, stripping away everything um, that's yours. But there's the idea that, you know, in, in the underworld, there are no secrets. In the underworld, everything is, you know, you, know, it, you can make a claim. There, there are no lies. There, you, you, you can make a claim, and that claim will be tested. Um, it, that may also connect in with the idea, the ancient idea, that the dead had the gifts of prophecy, this is the reason, you know, people practice necromancy or even the fact that people use Ouija boards today. It's the idea that somehow the person who's dead has a, a bigger picture of, um, of life and what's going on or the future than, uh, than humans do. So, um, which has always been a curious feature of the dead from ancient times, and I don't think it's an idea that's totally gotten away. Um, okay, um, so in chapter five of the prose at a book, um, uh, let's see, okay, make sure I say this right. Um, Skald Skaparmal, I think is how you say that. And I'm, if I'm saying it wrong, you know, forgive me for that, but it's, you know, I, I'm, uh, I've tried to go through all the words in this initially and I, I miss a few. Um, Hell is mentioned as a, in a keening for Baldur. Okay, so remember I talked about keening, the, the weeping and wailing. Okay. Um, so, um, so it's okay. So there's that. Um, and then um, the Linglinga saga, written in the 13th century by Snorri Sturluson, Hell's referred to, though never by name. Um, in chapter 17, the king um, Digvi dies of sickness. A poem from the 9th century, um, Ying, uh, Ying Tal, uh that forms the basis of the saga, is then quoted that describes Hell's taking a Digvi. It says, I doubt not, but the Digvi's corpse Hell does hold to whore with him. For Ulf Sib, a scion of kings, by right should be should caress in death, to love Lord Loki's sister, Yingvi's heir, or all sweet of Sweden. 
Genkai. And there's, uh, they talk about some other sections where she is mentioned there um, in the same, this same particular epic. And then there's um, um, Eagle Saga. Uh, the Icelandic saga, Eagle Saga, contains the poem Sonatorek. Uh, this attributes the poem to the 10th century skald um, Eagle uh, Skala Grimson and writes that it was composed by Eagle after the death of his son Gunnar. Um, of course, he doesn't mention hell, but he does refer to her as death. So she becomes also a personification of death. He says, now my course is tough. Death, close sister of Odin's enemy, stands on the nest. With resolution and without remorse, I will gladly await my own. Okay. So, um, so yeah, so that's, that's sort of an interesting one. And then, um, yeah, and then there's a 13th century work, the Gesta Danorum, uh, the dying Baldur has a visitation from Proserpina which is here translated as the goddess of death. So um, there's assumption that that was the equivalent of hell. So, okay. Um, so we've talked about um, these particular uh, sources about, um, you know, where hell is mentioned in the Norse sagas and Swedish and these Icelandic, and we see this, this mention in the Gospel of Nicodemus. Now, uh, Jacob Grimm, okay, the Brothers Grimm, um, had theorized that hell, um, and this, this, this again I'm taking from, um, I think, from Wikipedia, he theorized that hell, whom he refers to as halja, the theorized proto-Germanic form of the term, is essentially an image of a greedy, unrestoring female deity. Unrestoring is an interesting word, because it's the idea of that devouring aspect of the earth. He says, at the higher we are allowed to penetrate into our antiquities, the less hellish and the less hellish and more godlike may Halja appear. Okay, so he's making the point that, you know, she probably was not, um, though she might not have been pleasantly associated because hell is, you know, you know, she didn't necessarily have the same um, haggish kind of traits that you see. Um, of this, we have a particularly strong guarantee in her affinity to the Indian Bhavani, who travels about and bathes like Nerthus and Holda, but she is likewise called Kali or Mahakali, the great black goddess. Okay, so now we're seeing Hela as being compared to Kali. I don't know if that quite matches up, but um, if you think about it, she's got that bluish skin, um, and which is what Kali has. She has a very, although she has a very dark, almost black blue skin. Um, in the underworld, hell is supposed to sit in judgment on souls. This office, the similar name and the black hue, make her exceedingly like Halja. Okay. Um, I don't know. Now, maybe he's suggesting that Kali is supposed to sit in judgment on souls, and that would, that would actually be incorrect. Kali does not sit in judgment on souls. That is the, that is the, um, uh, well, that is the domain of, of the Lord Yama. Uh, it is Yama who deals with, with death. Now, there are aspects of Kali that, um, there are, there are some of the uh, Ashtama, one of the Ashtamatrikas, in fact, who is, um, you know, who would have who would have connections to Kali, not not the same as the Mahavidyas, but there would be a connection there. Um, that is, they're considered to be the spouse of Yama, <clears throat> so, uh, so that would be more with the judgment, because remember, judgment is not really a thing in Hinduism. Kali is really more about liberation, about. Um, there is a judgment there in the sense that she's making, forcing you to see things as they are. Um, so that you can make changes or corrections or you can detach yourself from something that is no longer serving you and that may, in fact, be attaching you to some kind of suffering. Okay. Um, 
Now, he also, Grimm says, Halja is one of the oldest and commonest conceptions of our heathenism. So, right, so she's, so there, again, that's the old idea of the god of the old religion becomes the devil of the new. You know, deities that, you know, um, that maybe just very naturally had to do with death, which, again, people are not excited about, but... At the same time, you know, it was it was it was a natural, if not if one if a part of life that was not looked forward to, it was just you tried to gain your immortality by being remembered in other ways. Um, and so, you know, it wasn't considered to be pleasant, but it wasn't a punishment. It's just that's just what it is. You know, humans humans don't get that um, get that uh, um, humans don't get to live forever. And so, but you know, when once you Christianize things. And once you demonize uh, the underworld, okay, then, you know, when, when the place under the earth is no longer where everybody goes, but a place of punishment, because, you know, if you're good, you get to go rise up to the sky. Um, and yes, there is, because there's the idea of the wings. The idea of anima even comes from the idea of a bird or a winged creature, your, your, your soul. The anima is the soul. You fly upwards, right? You leave off the, the heavy husk of the body and you fly upwards. Um, once you have that idea, then yes, then the, then, then all of a sudden, um, hell becomes this evil, vicious hag. And, um, you know, she doesn't, she's not respected for what her role is. Um, okay. Now Grimm also theorizes that the Hellhest, a three-legged horse that roams the countryside as a harbinger of plague and pestilence in Danish folklore, was originally the steed of the goddess Hell, and that she roamed the land with this, picking up the dead that were her due. So that, that makes her more akin to the personification of death. In addition, Grimm says that a wagon was once ascribed to hell with which hell made journeys. She's an example of what he calls a half-goddess, one who cannot be shown to either wife or daughter of a god, and who stands in dependent relation to higher divinities. Um, and that half-goddesses stand higher than half-gods in Germanic mythology. Not sure what his uh, reasoning is for that, but... Um, She's, uh, well, she's certainly nobody's wife. So that's another thing, too. There's that, that independent factor that we see with a lot of these, uh, these deities. Um, okay, now Hilda, Hilda Ellis Davidson. Now her, she's the one who theorizes that, um, that hell is actually a literary personification, that the word is just mean, meant to signify death or the grave, and, you know, that it's only a poetical device that they personify it into a god. Um... But, as she also adds, on the other hand, various examples of certain supernatural women connected with death are found in sources for North mythology and seem to have been closely connected with the world of death and were pictured as welcoming dead warriors, and that the depiction of hell as a goddess might well owe something to these. Okay, so she, she tries to point to examples where she doesn't think of hell as a goddess. Um, I would probably disagree with that, um, and, and, I'll, and now I'm going to give you my reason why. Um, sort of conclude this podcast with that. There is a, in, in, in linguistics, now, first of all, allow me to say that I'm not a linguist, okay? I find linguistics fascinating, uh, especially in relation to mythology, because you start to see sometimes these connections. And again, we're talking about proven connections. We're not talking about like, hmm, that word sounds like that. Maybe they're the same. Not necessarily, okay? But you definitely see this kind of movement of certain types of beliefs, say from the Far East to the Near East. So, for example, from India and places like that, you know, India and, you know, and, and Hindu type beliefs, or even Buddhist, that move their way into places like Persia and get reinterpreted in a different way, 
when we see like in, in Zoroastrianism, for example. And then we see that combination of beliefs work their way into, say, um, you know, into the other, you know, centers. And the reason that it, it's the, the great powers that end up spreading these beliefs is because, because these go from being little tribal kingdoms to being great city-states where now you have a diversity of people, so you have a diversity of ideas. So whatever the original inflection was of, um, of a particular god or what their role might have been, um, gets changed as people start to hear about other people's gods and look say, oh, well, you know, that god's like this or this is like that. And then in some ways, they become syncretized, they become merged together. So as you see this go on, um, you see this change of beliefs. And then you get to Rome, okay? Rome, a lot of the beliefs from the East came to Rome around the time of the, Second Pun uh, of the Punic Wars, around 200s BCE. And when that when that happened, um, you know, there's there's like I said, there was a whole new influx of religion, but you also had the Roman tendency to categorize things. Things things had to be labeled in their proper area. So things were so th and things were very much binary. They were either masculine or feminine. Language has um, they talk about gender, case, and number. And if you've ever learned. That's why I encourage people to learn Latin. I mean, it teaches you a lot about the basics of how a lot of these languages work. And so gender, is it masculine, feminine, or neuter? Okay? It's, it's not that, you know, masculine and feminine are not the only options usually. You see a lot of, for example, neuter words in ancient Greek. But Latin has this habit of, yes, it does actually have uh, masculine, feminine, and neuter in Latin, but there is a tendency, particularly among the poets, to take you know, for example, a noun that's masculine, and if it's like, like, like Deus, okay, which refers to God. And then, but when referring to a female, refer, change it to Dea, put a feminine ending on it. Um, because now it's referring to the female and not to the male. They wouldn't call a um, male god, you know, you know, they wouldn't call a female a goddess, Deus, okay? Even though that, that deity is a god, you know, um, is a divine and immortal figure. So there was this idea, there's a book um, that I, and I do mention it in my, um, I, you know, I refer to it in my book, Death and the Maiden, but it's called Sexing the World, and it's by Anthony Corbey, and it's, uh, it was written by, it was Princeton University Press, um, I remember picking up this book in Oxford, um, and it was, it, it's a really fascinating read, um, especially people who are interested in gender and transgender issues, too because they talk about what they call hermaphrodism, you know, the idea of somebody being dual-sexed and how the Romans dealt with that, because the Romans did not know what to do with that. They saw that as a curse. And he talks a lot about the histories of that. But this idea, the bottom line is this. When you have a language situation where something has to be either masculine or feminine, okay, there's a tendency to assign a very definite gender, and that, you know, intentionally or not, whatever it is becomes personified by that gender. Um, I mentioned in the introduction to my book a very interesting study in which they, um, they, they decided to, um, they, 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 they did like a made-up word for, I think it was violin or something like that, but they made, they made up a word and they told one group of people that it was a masculine word and another group of people that it was a feminine word and asked them to describe the object. So they showed a picture of a violin and said, Oh, this is this is this fake word, and um, it's actually a masculine word. And believe it or not, their description of the violin changed depending on whether or not 
they were told that it's gender, you know, gender case and number. The gender is that the gender was masculine. Okay. And, you know, so, you know, whether it was masculine or feminine, you know, uh, the feminine words, of course, were, more, were much softer, whereas the, the, the masculine words were sounded more active and more aggressive. People unconsciously have this. This is the way that we express ourselves and the way that we interpret the world. And when people want to change that, they have to recognize that. Okay. That's why this is important. So to me, okay, you have got all of these nouns the descri- or these personifications or deities that describe the underworld and the earth itself as feminine. Now, again, not in all cultures. I've mentioned ancient Egypt. Um, the, uh, the god of earth is named, there's a god of earth named Geb. Okay. Not, not female, but what we and, and of course to them the underworld though was entirely in you know something in the sky you know this was something that happened um, in, in the cosmos um, or actually kind of on the flip side of the earth because they kind of saw it more as flat so it was on the flip side this kind of um, reversed world as it were but when we start to see the idea of like you're you're buried in the earth and there and the underworld you know under <laughs> literally under. That's what the word, I tell people asking me about what's the, what's the root of chthonia. Chthonia stands for chthonic. Chthonic has to do with the earth and what lies underneath it. That's the, the Greek term chthonios. And chthonia, I'm doing the same thing. I'm adding the feminine ending. Um, there, is a, there is a goddess called, um, or rather I shouldn't say she's a goddess, but there is a figure in Greek mythology known as chthonia. But this is a reference to, uh, to the underworld uh, and, and, and the feminine aspect of it. See, I'm doing the same thing. I'm adding that, that feminine inflection to it. Um, but that's because that's what I'm particularly focused on here. But see, this is how we interpret. This is how we do things in language. And when you start to associate the underworld and you see that as inferior or the place of the wicked, and what do we consider wicked? Sensuality, people who indulge in pleasures, who like money, who like this, who like that. Um, and again, in anything, look, anything in excess is probably bad, but it's also not a bad thing to be able to enjoy your life. You know, you know, there's there's a, a idea since the time of the Greek philosophers that says that uh, enjoying yourself is bad. You have to live in a state. That's why aestheticism is held up as something so wonderful. Um, now, of course, the Buddhists will tell you, oh, well, aestheticism, you know, that that can also be a vice. But, you know, but but even not digressing there. When we think of sinfulness in the West, when you look at Don, you read Dante's Inferno, what are these people doing? They had, you know, sex with each other outside of marriage. They did this, they did that. This idea of enjoying the sensual world or engaging in sensuality is going to to um, bring you this 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 horrible punishment, okay? Because somehow it is a bad or wrong thing to do. So you notice that everything associated with the feminine there becomes negativized. It becomes treated as devalued. It's something that's not. Uh, important. It's not something that's, um, you know, it's considered to be lesser and inferior. And thus, we often see that the status of women with that can also, you know, th- there is this, I, this is the, there, I feel like there's a root there in the idea why women need to be quote unquote controlled. Why women's sexuality needs to be controlled because it's connected with that. Again, very unconsciously, but it's the inflections of language. And our unconscious minds interpret it in that manner. And when it's collectively interpreted that way, then it, then it determines the value of an entire culture. All good things to think about, okay? And hell is a very good example of, um, of, a, per- <clears throat> of a personification of 
sort of wickedness and her hag quality too. I mean, I've done something about night hags. Um, in previously, I had a podcast on that. And, and the way the hag is associated with the witch, like the woman who is wise in the ways of the earth, that's also a bad thing, right? Um, you know, again, in that traditional way of looking at it, we think of it as patriarchal, and the reason we do is because the things that are defined as good are often defined uh, in more masculine terms. And the things that are good in feminine terms are always things that are considered to be more passive or softer or more yielding, okay? Which, which can be attributes of femininity, but... That, that other aspect of it, the one that's, that's, um, that's darker, that's associated with death, that's associated, is now considered to be an evil. And that's a problem. If we want to solve a lot of the inequalities and things that we have in our culture, that is something that we very much have to consider, even if it seems like it might be insignificant. Okay, that's, that's enough of my soapbox for the day. I'm going to um, end this podcast now. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you to those who follow me on Patreon, patreon.com slash Chthonia, if you'd like to support my work. Um, at the moment, um, this, and maybe by the time this podcast goes live, this might change, but all of my work, including my side work in Reiki and um, in um, sort of, um, I, I don't want to call it grief counseling, but, but guiding people through um, grief and so forth and things like that, that, that I have on the Liminal Reiki site, um, liminalreiki.com is currently down, but all my services are now at cathonia.net for the time being. I have a great new website coming out for the Liminal Reiki, um, so there'll be probably more on that featured somewhere on my social media, which is Cathonia on YouTube and Cathonia Podcast, two words on Facebook, fa- Facebook, good God, Facebook, <laughs> one word on Instagram and Twitter. Um, that's it for now. Thank you all again. See you next time.